Hello and welcome to Euractiv's AgriFood podcast. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And I'm Natasha Furt. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's AgriFood team. So do you see, do you foresee a day somewhere in the in the near future where we actually don't start the podcast talking about the cap? Or do you think that's just <laughs> too far away? Absolutely too far away. I mean, <laughs> I, I understand that it is the moment but the negotiation is going to last like months. So so each week. Slow down, slow down. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I expected this criticism uh, to use mm. a, a metaphor from, from, from football. Uh, Timmermans enters leading and, uh, and, and the referee basically whistled a foul. But I don't know if, if it was too early to use the thread at this stage. But I mean, I want to sum up for our listeners the whole situation. I try to be very short. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there was this vote at the European Parliament on the negotiating mandate for the Common Agricultural Policy in order to start talks with the other legislator, uh, the European Council basically the farming ministers. Um, the Greens wrote a letter immediately after the, this vote, a letter to Commission President Ursula von der Leyen explaining their concerns. Uh, it's, it's useful to recall that they voted against the Parliament's mandate. And von der Leyen uh, partially shared the Greens' concerns adding that although the negotiating position of the European Parliament and the European Council may compromise the Green Deal at this initial stage, the Green Deal is the European uh, Union uh, flagship environmental policy, but at the same time, uh, von der Leyen believes that things can improve and therefore she doesn't withdraw the proposal. The fact is that the week after, Franz Timmermans, her uh, vice president, Uh, said in an interview with the Dutch TV that if the final deal is not in line with the Green Deal, the Commission could always withdraw the proposal. So ministers and negotiators, of course, it's a threat because it basically stopped the legislative proceeding and and the Commission has to come up with a new proposal and and starting over again the process, the whole process. So it's going to be basically two wasted years. So ministers and negotiators in the parliament went ballistic, felt threatened. Uh, the German presidency and the German foreign minister, Julia Klockner, openly attacked uh, Franz Timmermans, demanding intellectual honesty. Yeah, Julia Klockner definitely did not mince her words when she was talking about her feelings about uh, what she also described as a threat. And she said that this has deeply upset um, all, all member states. And uh, she added that the suggestion from Timmermans that this CAP proposal was in some way a step backwards was utter nonsense. Um, and she emphasized that she just she won't stand for it. So pretty strong words um, from Juliet Plockner. And actually, in response to this, to her reaction to this, we spoke with Tilman von Sampson. So he's the spokesperson of the German Fridays for Future agricultural campaign uh, to hear his reaction to this. Well, first of all, Julia Klöckner has shown us that she's by far the EU's most shiny Democrat by telling the people and the media that the current cap is a system change. And as her own scientist has proved that you can call it a deception of voters by a minister. And second, 
the main cap negotiators at the moment are three German conservatives. It's Julia Klöckner, Peter Jahr and Norbert Liese. And if you imagine that we have 27 member states in the EU, we see participation at its best. And all the dirty deals in the cap are well known, like oligarchs and populists like Viktor Orban are gaining millions from the subsidies. And even Nestle and coal companies are profiting. So there are deep links between many European agropoliticians and the agro-industry. But the actual scandal is that the cap in fact threatens the Paris Agreement, which feels to us like a middle finger against our future and democracy. And that's why we are so concerned. Because if the cap is running against the climate laws and the public interest and security, the Commission has the democratic duty to start afresh. They have to bring all the interests together because that's what democracy is actually about. It's about transparency and separation of powers, which is all violently hurt within the cap. And if President Ursula von der Leyen isn't capable of dealing with that, we have to ask ourselves if she's the right person to lead the European Union and if the cap at all is reformable. So that is why so many young people around the EU and even worldwide are demanding to withdraw the cap. So yeah, there was this Agrifish Council this week. So basically it's the monthly gathering of farm minister, ministers um, in the European Union, of course. And this issue was, wasn't even on the agenda, but several member states' uh, delegations asked for further clarification from the commission representative at that meeting, who was uh, uh, the commissioner for food safety, Stella Kiriakides. So the commission apparently backtracks and says that uh, it's it's not considering a withdrawal. So uh, in the press conference after the Agrifish Council, uh, I asked the commissioner for agriculture, Janusz Wojciechowski, uh, to make it clear whether the withdrawal is still an option for the commission. And he said, I'm using his word, I have a clear mandate to finalize this dossier so the, the common agricultural policy, it's part of my mission statement and we are not considering any alternatives, he replied. Um, in the meantime, representatives of the centre-right European People's Party in the European Parliament expressed their concerns in another letter to Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. That's, that's the interinstitutional communication, how it works in Brussels. But, not, but it's not because of the pandemic. It's always been like this from, from time immemorial. So... Um, in the letter, uh, these uh, five leading Christian Democrats, MEPs, uh, deemed that uh, Timmermans' comment was unacceptable as it uh, did not respect the decisions made by the co-legislators. And of course, President Ursula von der Leyen replied this letter with another letter. Um, she basically said that Although, the, again, although the withdrawal of a proposal is always a legal and institutional possibility, the Commission is not considering it. Now, even the fact that von der Leyen claimed this right again and did not explicitly give up on using such powers uh, at a later stage, I think it means something. So I still think that the Commission has tried to tone down uh, the dispute for the moment and defuse a potential institutional crisis. And I've been wondering these days if the Commission can actually legally uh, scrap the the cap. 
And I asked some legal experts um, to, to cast a light on this controversy, and you can find a full article on Euractive, but I'm going to pass the floor to uh, one of the legal experts that I contacted, Matteo Bonello, who's assistant professor of EU law at the Maastricht uh, University. And he's going to talk a bit more of this commission's power to retract uh, its proposals. Even if the treaties do not say it explicitly, uh, the commission has the power to withdraw legislative proposals. This has been acknowledged by the Court of Justice in 2015 in the macrofinancial assistance case. In that decision, the court said that while not having a power of veto, the Commission can withdraw a proposal for objective reasons. Now, the scenario of the proposed uh, common agricultural policy regulation is certainly different compared to the previous case. It is not a situation in which proposed amendments of the Council and the Parliament would threaten the raison d'etre of the Commission regulation, but the Commission itself thinks that the proposal is now problematic. However, I would argue that the Commission legally could, could still withdraw the proposed regulation. Uh, and in particular, I think that the Commission could claim that the proposal, because it allegedly conflicts with the Green Deal objectives, uh, might now go against the general interests of the Union and uh, that the Commission protects and promotes also in the legislative process. So as we've all said, everyone's eyes are pretty much on the ongoing discussions over the common agricultural policy reform. But in the background, there are some other interesting developments that are happening that I think deserve some attention. And one of these is the EU taxonomy regulation, which might have slipped slightly under the radar um, in, in the agri world. Oh, taxonomy, I know, it doesn't... Ooh, taxonomy. It, it is wild. <laughs> and it definitely like something some wild. No, I mean, I mean the, the regulation is pretty interesting. It, it, it's going to have a pretty big effect on not just agriculture, but all the different sectors, um, but that includes agriculture. Um, so what is the taxonomy regulation? Uh, so the, the regulation is basically designed uh, to give an idea of what constitutes a truly green investment. So the goal is to create the world's first ever green list, um, if you like, of sustainable economic activities or taxonomy uh, based on the best scientific knowledge that we have at our disposal. Um, so this is designed to make this kind of establishment of this harmonized green criteria, which will then help investors determine which economic activities can be considered environmentally sustainable. So helping them to navigate this transition to uh, a low carbon, resilient and resource efficient economy. Um, so, so money talks, it's where the money's gonna go. It's gonna set in motion the kind of investments that's, that's gonna happen. Um, so under the EU taxonomy regulation, um, to qualify as green, a business activity has to be proven to substantially support uh, one of these six identified areas, that's um, climate mitigation and, and adaptation, uh, sustainable water use, circular economy, pollution prevention and control, and biodiversity. And crucially, they have to contribute to, some, to these without doing any significant harm to the other criteria. So uh, the green taxonomy was actually uh, decided on and agreed on back in December in 2019, but the details of it are in the delegated acts, which is uh, what we've managed to get a version of this week. And we've had a little look in advance. So what does this taxonomy regulation hold for the agricultural sector? Uh, 
Well, the regulation recognises the potential of the agricultural sector, um, including perennial and also non-perennial crops, as well as livestock, um, as activities that have the potential to offer a substantial contribution to uh, the main six environmental objectives that I set out. And interestingly, the taxonomy regulation uh, highlights that although the sector does emit currently high levels of greenhouse gases, um, it also talks about the fact that the, that the potential of the sector also has enormous potential to act as a carbon sink. So the criteria is designed to reflect this kind of dual role of, of the sector as both a kind of foe and a friend um, of, of climate change. And it also interestingly addresses the kind of the livestock um, question, uh, just as the cow in the room, if you like, talking about how the livestock sector can offer contributions towards climate change mitigation and adaptation. Now it offers uh, a few caveats to, to this, uh, quite a few caveats about how how the livestock are, are produced and how they graze and, and where they graze and all, all of this. But um, it does. It is interesting that it highlights kind of livestock's contribution to, to this. So the commission is due uh, to publish um, a, a draft of the taxonomy regulation in the coming days, which will be followed by a four-week consultation before uh, making the uh, the official proposal uh, at the end of December. So one to watch. So if I understood correctly, it's like a green label for business activities. Mm, yeah, mostly intended for investors. Basically. It's kind of like a menu of like sustainable options for investment that this, that investors can then, you know, if they if they want to be like, how do I put my money somewhere worthwhile and sustainable? They consult this menu, pick off what they want, you know, and then yeah, I mean, also considering the ambition of the commission, I mean, the environmental ambition. So, uh, the the European Investment Bank already started um, to uh, consider only uh, projects that are considered green mm -hmm. so and this sets the criteria so, so it's pretty interesting because that's quite a lot of power yeah yeah, yeah. it's quite interesting mm -hmm. it's quite interesting and, and and most of all it's not common agricultural policy related <laughs> exactly exactly You've probably seen from, from last week's newsletter that we touched the topic of the US and the US-EU trade relations. And I hope you read it from, from uh, your mailbox and not from the website, because on the website there was this tiny uh, mistake in the headline that ruined my joke. Why would you bring that up? I already feel bad enough about this. A, a mistake that wasn't caused by me but by someone else in the newsroom. Anyway, by... Guilty, guilty as charged. I'm just going to put my hands up and say that was, that was entirely my fault. I'm so sorry I ruined your moment, Gerardo. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Biden's victory uh, in the US elections has been hailed as a new hope for the struggling transatlantic relationship. And, uh, and we wanted to talk about this. And, and so... And also about the situation of the in of the farming sector in the US. So we 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 have a guest this week. So we are here with Jonathan Owl, who's a journalist at the San Luis Public Radio and also a reporter at the Harvest Public Media. So thank you for joining us, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So uh, we've been following the U.S. elections and, of course, uh, even from the other shore of the Atlantic. But what we need from you today is a bit of a background on how the U.S. agriculture sector is holding up and how U.S. farmers uh, reacted to uh, Joe Biden's election. Uh, The first thing that we would like to ask you is, I mean, we have seen in the Farm Journal ahead of the U.S. election a survey of 5,000 U.S. farmers showing that 85% of them would have voted for Trump to be re-elected. So what's your take on this uh, massive support? Well, I think that, that a lot of people, when they hear that farmers do something, they assume that all of that decision or point of view is informed by the fact that they're farmers. Um, when really it goes a lot deeper than that, because farmers are also people who live in rural parts of America. And I think that the support for Donald Trump has more to do with the rural sensibilities than it does to do with the business of farming. Um, I think that that uh, the, the farming population in the United States uh, in general prefers small government. I think they prefer, they are not big fans of urban liberal points of view. So I think that on social issues and broader economic issues, their backing for Donald Trump, that's where that really comes from. And I don't know that it has as much to do with farm policy. That said, there were a couple of things in the Trump administration that really did appeal to farmers in the United States. Uh, First and foremost was a reduction in regulation. Uh, Similar to the way that Donald Trump has approached a lot of different industries and a lot of different sectors of government, he has rolled back a lot of regulation and given a lot more freedom to individuals to kind of do what they want. And that's true in the agriculture sector as well. And then the other place that that uh, Donald Trump did something that uh, farmers really like is he really cranked up the payments um, for farmers, especially in light of COVID. Uh, the United States Department of Agriculture uh, gave out huge amounts of payments to help farmers through the COVID crisis. Um, so much so that uh, a recent study that came out from USDA indicated that farmers will actually have more money in their pockets this year than they did last year, but only because of those massive increases in government subsidies uh, that were a product of COVID. So if you're a farmer living in rural America right now, you probably see Donald Trump as someone who gave you fewer regulations on your farming practices who increased your bank account by stepping up on COVID things and who you agree with on maybe bigger picture social and uh, and economic and government issues. And I think if you kind of stir all of that together, that's where the, the, the farm support for Donald Trump came from, even though Donald Trump also did some things that were very bad for farmers. That's a really uh, interesting insight. Thank you. I think we'll come back a little bit more um, to the kind of, you're talking about the fewer regulations. Sure. And we'll come back to that in in a little bit. But I just wanted to ask you, um, uh, following on from that question about um, the Trump administration and how they kind of escalated trade tensions with China and also with partners like us in the the EU. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not going to ask you about the kind of details about this kind of trade tensions, but what I am interested in is kind of how this tension has uh, affected the farming sector in the U.S., you know, how the farming community has felt this. Well, you know, really a lot of it depends on what you produce. Again, you know, I think that one of the big problems that people who are not involved with agriculture, when they look at agriculture, they look at it as a monolith and they think that, that you know, it is one enormous sector when it's really tiny in you know, all these different pieces. If you're a soybean farmer, 
the the Trump administration and their trade policies have been horrible for you because the amount of um, uh, the tariff retaliation against U.S. soybeans that came from Trump's tariffs on Chinese products were very, very severe. And so soybean farmers have had a heck of a time uh, making it under the Trump administration because of those uh, the, that trade war and those tariffs. Another sector that surprisingly has done very badly is dairy uh, and specifically cheese. And that's because other countries have some very, very strong bilateral agreements uh, for trading uh, cheese and other dairy products. But the Trump administration has not been able to do that. So it's not so much that Trump did something that was bad other than other countries have been able to forge those uh, individual deals uh, by, through bilateral trade deals that have hurt their sectors. So, you know, some of those sectors have done very poorly. Other ones have done okay. I mean, if, if your primary exports are to Canada and Mexico, you might be better off because uh, the Trump uh, trade agreement in North America that replaced NAFTA has done some very good things for some sectors in agriculture. So I, I think that, that uh, you know, to answer your question, it really kind of depends on what you farm and where you try to send it. There are certainly some people who have been hurt significantly by the Trump administration, and there are some people who have been helped. Yeah, you, you actually mentioned um, the the aspect of the soybean, because, I mean, that there was also an agreement uh, between the EU and the U.S. on, uh, actually, on soybean. It was the, the beginning of the, you know, uh, trying to appease the trade tension. But uh, I would like to ask you, uh, I mean, uh, what are the outstanding issues that the new administration needs to address uh, when it comes to farming in the next four years? Well, all of that depends on what you value in farming. You know, when we talk about outstanding issues, there are certainly some in the agriculture community who see that, you know, reducing trade tensions and opening up foreign markets as the number one priority. There are some people who want to see uh, the reduction of regulations continue um, and go even further. On the other hand, there are some people who think there should be more regulations and more environmentally friendly and more uh, sustainable farming practices. Um, there are, uh, you know, it, 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 it all depends on what little part of agriculture you exist in as to what the expectations are um, for, you know, for the, for the next administration. Um, I, I think that, that, you know, definitely the biggest ones, though, I mean, figuring out trade is definitely part of it because I talked to a number of farmers who, even though they support Trump, they talk about how difficult things have been with trade issues. But they also say things like, yes, but in the long run, we need to stand up to China. And if there's a little short term hurt for farmers, it'll be worth it in the long run. Uh, you know, is will that, you know, would that uh, mindset continue into a Biden administration? I, I don't think so, but, you know, there's definitely a lot of different perspectives. So it, it, it's difficult to say, you know, that these are like the top two or three things that the next administration and the next secretary of agriculture are going to have to figure out. Um, but definitely, you know, trade is up there, uh, regulation and environmental protection um, and sustainability and, and how seriously all those are taken definitely going to be up there. I know that you mentioned um, earlier that, you know, some farmers are actually going to be coming out of this pandemic, um, you know, with more money in their pocket. Um, I was going to ask you, I mean, we've been following really closely 
how the agri-food sector in the EU has been hit by the pandemic. And I wanted to ask or, or push a little bit further on um, how, how the pandemic has affected the US farming sector. Um, it's, it's really interesting what you were saying about, about the, you know, maybe being slightly better off afterwards. Um, but how else have you seen the effects of the pandemic on the farming sector? Well, I think definitely uh, meat production, uh, and the, that has been, been something that we have seen a huge impact on, um, mostly because of uh, COVID outbreaks at very large uh, slaughterhouses and, and meatpacking plants. Um, and that has had a, a, a very detrimental effect, uh, higher meat prices, um, some fewer options in grocery stores. Uh, that that has definitely uh, been something that we've seen. And in addition, you know, when you can't slaughter animals, that really creates a horrible backup because, you know, when, when animals are ready to be processed, you can't wait another year. <laughs> uh, they got to go. And so um, it has definitely created some supply chain issues and some backups. Um, and then one of the interesting outcomes in the U.S. has been that a lot of states have tried to take some of their federal grants to help with COVID issues and put them into beefing up capacity at smaller meatpacking plants. Uh, the idea being that if you're not relying on you know a few big ones, if you had a lot of smaller ones, that that would help the supply chain in the future. Um, that I don't know how successful that's going to be or how quickly that's going to happen. But one of the, the interesting domino effects of that has been that now a lot of small farmers that relied on small meatpacking plants were now being told, we can't process your animals anymore because we're you know helping out with these bigger places because they're shut down uh, for pandemic reasons. So I guess the, 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 the offshoot of all of that is some, they're very, very small farmers who've had to um, lose a lot of money on animals or have decided to not raise animals this year because they had no assurances that they were going to be able to get them processed in a timely manner. So, you know, that's one of the outcomes. Um, you know, I think uh, that, that, you know, just foreign trade in general has been not as strong as it has been in the past. Uh, we we're still coming off, you know, years and years and years of low prices, which definitely makes farming a tough go. So I, I think that, that you know, the, the pandemic didn't come at a great time. It's not like farming was doing great before this, and it's definitely had a negative effect in a lot of ways. And uh, actually, this is, a, is more a curios of a curiosity. Um, are there any rumors on the uh, potential successor of uh, Sonny Perdue and, and also on the direction that the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture is heading into, or maybe it is too early at this stage? Oh no! Oh no! It, it's not too early at all. Actually, there are uh, there have been some names uh, floated for his possible uh, Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, generally, the person who is considered the leading candidate is Heidi Heitkamp, who is a former senator uh, from the state of North Dakota, um, and uh, she's generally perceived as the front runner to be the next Secretary of Agriculture. Um, other names that have been floated out there. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, who a senator from Minnesota, who also ran for president and did not get the nomination uh, against Joe Biden. And then there's some Congress people, uh, Sherry Bustos from Illinois, uh, Congressperson Fudge from Ohio and uh, Shelley uh, uh, Pingree from Maine. So 
Um, there are some names being floated out there. I do think it's interesting that all of the names that are being floated for Secretary of Agriculture are women. This would only be the second uh, female Secretary of Agriculture in U.S. history. Um, and they're all from states that are very, uh, very farm oriented. Uh, in terms of how they would carry themselves and what their policies would be like, it's a little bit of an unknown. Um, you know, Joe Biden was the vice president during Barack Obama when Tom Vilsack was the secretary of agriculture. So a lot of people are looking back at Secretary Vilsack and what he did when he was secretary of agriculture as some indications of what things might be like. Uh, Vilsack has actually been uh, somewhat public in supporting Heidi Heitkamp for that position. So, yeah, there's definitely been a lot of talk about who the next secretary of agriculture will be. Um, what they will do, I think uh, you'll probably the best guess is to look at, at what Secretary Vilsack did. I think you'll see more um, regulation. I think you'll see more environmentally focused farming practices. I think you'll see a pretty strong commitment to improve crop insurance and uh, and payment to farmers because that's always popular regardless of who's you know in in, in power. Um, so I think those are some of the things that you might see, but. Again, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a wild card. One of the un other things I think is really interesting about this is if you look at all of those names, while those people um, are from states with a very he heavy agriculture uh, industry, none of them, with the exception of uh, of the the congresswoman from Maine, none of them are people who really grew up on and worked on farms. You know, they're lawyers and you know politicians and. And so I, I mentioned that because some of the people that I talked to about farmers that I talked to about why they like Donald Trump, one of the things I heard over and over again is they said, well, he doesn't know a lot about agriculture, but he's very good ab about surrounding himself with people who do know a lot about agriculture. And they talk about Sonny Perdue and they talk about some of the Congress members that Trump has relied upon for um uh, advice of, on agriculture issues like Jason Smith, who's from here in Southern Missouri. He, you know, he's a farm kid and grows and lives on a farm uh, in, in Southern Missouri. So I think that, that that might be an interesting shift that if they go with someone who doesn't have quite that farm credibility, I wonder how the farm community will react to that, um, even though it's someone who may be from a farm state in a lot of ways. Interesting to hear that there might be some uh, woman power <laughs> yep. uh, as a head of agri in the US. And I just wanted to finish up with one last question. I know you touched upon the, the possibility of uh, there being a stronger focus kind of on the environment um, mm -hmm. in the future. Obviously, in Europe, um, here in the EU, um, we've, we've had a really strong push on green farming practices um, and legislators are working on, on putting uh, a strong environmental conditionality on those that receive farming subsidies and mm -hmm. i was just kind of wondering if there was any appetite I and mean, you've mentioned it slightly there but any appetite for that kind of um, thing in the, in the u.s uh, if there's anything similar in in the u.s um yes and no uh you know I, I you you may be aware of the green new deal uh which is a, a proposal for a lot of environmental issues that come from the more liberal uh, and progressive wing of the democratic party um, they definitely have some elements um, in the, the Green New Deal that would be uh, much more focused on sustainable agriculture in exchange for the crops and subsidy payments that you, that you referenced. Um, just like with agriculture and a lot of other issues, 
uh, Biden's going to have to have a, a very interesting balancing point of trying to figure out the more leftist part of his party's desires versus the most central, more central part of his party's desires in, you know, considering that we still don't know how the U.S. Senate is going to be uh, resolved. It could be in favor of Democrats or it could be in favor of Republicans. So if there's a Republican Senate, um, it's very doubtful that the more liberal and progressive uh, elements of agriculture that the Green New Deal are uh, proposing are going to get through and are going to get very far. Even if the Democrats do control the Senate, they would do it by the very slimmest of majorities. So um, it, it's, I think it's doubtful that super uh, progressive uh, environmental and sustainable ag policies will get through. I think you will see more things like the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program that does uh, encourage farmers to do some things that are environmentally friendly and more helpful, but I don't think it'll go to the same extent of truly sustainable and green farming that some in the more liberal and progressive part of the Democratic Party would like. Uh, you know, Joe Biden in his the way he's going to go with agriculture is the way he'll go with everything is that that he'll be the president. He will have the House. He might have the Senate. And so the country is still very divided. And the idea that super leftist stuff is going to get through is probably not very accurate. And in news from the Brussels bubble this week. There was a meeting of the Committee uh, of the Inquiry on the Protection of Animals During Transport this week, which included a presentation and debate uh, by a representative from EFSA, so the European Food Safety Agency, um, detailing EFSA's mandate for new advice on welfare of animals in transport. And in more news of the cat, the EU Commission released a new fact sheet this week detailing how it intends to work with the Parliament and the Council over the new CAP reform um, and kind of detailing its position and, you know, the mandate that it has. And it also released a Q&A on the state of play on the CAP reform. And in other news on uh, CAP... So after having voted in favour of Parliament's position, the chair of the Environment Committee at the European Parliament, Pascal Canfan, told uh, a German daily that he now sees a high risk that the cap reform under negotiations could not be in line with the, the Green Deal and the Paris Agreement. And, and he said that uh, if the whole thing ends up in a reform not aligned with the Green Deal, he will vote against it. And, and he thinks that the majority in the parliament will do the same. And, and lastly, another uh, news, CAP-related, uh, it's coming from the capitals, but actually it was directed uh, to Brussels. So um, the, ministry, the farming ministry of um, 11 German uh, regions uh, call uh, on the Commission uh, to modify the economic agricultural policy in order to comply with the environmental objectives uh, of the European Green Deal. So we're here today with uh, Will Sermon, who is the Director of Public Affairs and Communications at Food Drink Europe. Uh, that is the Food and Beverage Trade Association here in Brussels. They've recently released their annual report on data and trends in the uh, food and drink sector in the EU. So we're here today to discuss this a little bit further. So welcome onto the podcast, um, Will. Thank you very much for being here with us mm -hmm. today. 
Um, to, it, uh, the report was actually really interesting. I thought it was a lot of really interesting things that it, that it raised. Um, but one of these things that really caught my eye in the report um, is that it found that pleasure was the leading driver of food innovation rather than, for example, things like price. Um, whereas the conversation often revolves around price um, here when you're talking about uh, leading innovation. Um, does this kind of show to you that food maybe has a value that is maybe underestimated here in the EU, uh, in your opinion? What, what do you think this curve shows? Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, I think pleasure is clearly really important. Um, I think everybody would agree that they want a food uh, or their drink to taste delicious. Um, and so that is a really important area of innovation, clearly. Um, on price, it's a, price really underlies all areas of innovation, I think. I think whenever a, a, a food and drink company is looking at um, maybe increasing uh, the pleasure of their product or the health um, benefits of their product, whatever it might be, there's always the underlying question of, well, when I do that, when I do this um, and, and innovate in this way, will it still be affordable to the consumer? So I wouldn't say that price is not driving innovation. It's underlying in, in all innovation. So it pervades across all the different ways that we're seeing um, our member companies and companies through the food and drink, drinking sector uh, in the way that they innovate. And uh, Will, can you tell us a bit more about the uh, relevant trends uh, when it comes to sustainability? Because I, I was impressed, uh, of course, it's EU related, but I was impressed by the growing percentage of, uh, uh, you know, plastic packaging recycled. And um, I mean, it's a good news considering the ban on single use plastic because the deadline for transposing the uh, the directive in domestic legislation is July 2021. But it seems that there is still something to do. Um, so what's your take on this? And do you have other highlights when it comes to sustainability of the sector? Well, I think you are absolutely right. It's it, This is a real highlight. Um, and the trend is going in the right direction on recycling of plastic waste. We all know that it's a, a monumental challenge that we're facing globally and, and also particularly in the EU. Um, so we've seen recycling of plastic waste increase by about 18% since 20, 2005 um, from consumers, that is. So recycling is now at about 42%. Um, that clearly leaves a huge gap for more recycling of plastic waste. And, and that's one area where I think we need to be committed as, as consumers and individuals and through the, through the Commission and its activities in the Circular Economy Action Plan. Um, but also um, activities th through the um, platform like the Circular Plastics Alliance, which is trying to ensure that there's around 10 million tons of recycled plastic going into new products by 2025. The figure today is only about 4 million. So there's a lot of work still to do. And uh, following on uh, from that, talking about other sustainability trends, um, it was estimated in the report that 20% of food uh, was wasted annually in, in, the, in the EU. Um, and there's been this kind of really increased focus on food waste recently. So what I was wondering was um, kind of what the trend was here, how this figure compares to previous years and whether we're seeing an improvement in this area. Well, that is a particularly good question. Measuring food waste has always been a tricky equation for us in Europe. And in fact, globally, it's, it's been tr quite tricky. Um, the 20% figure um, is a better figure than previous years. I think we are getting better at wasting less. But what we're really pleased to see is that the Commission, um, through their farm-to-fork strategy, is actually trying to um, to set 
um, proper EU member state level um, measurements so that we can actually measure from year to year on food waste. Because at the moment, we, we, we're kind of comparing apples with oranges when we look back on other years. So it's, it's difficult to say um, quite what the progress and trajectory has been. Um, but we know where we want to get to, and that's halving food waste by 2030. And that's a commitment um, that we've all got through the Sustainable Development Goals. And the EU has signed up to that. The industry has signed up to that. Uh, but we do actually need to be better at measuring so we can see our progress. And another thing that uh, that caught my eye was the uh, increasing trade surplus uh, over the past few years because it started, I think, in two thousand nine, and it's actually growing and growing. Uh, is there any reason behind that? Yeah, so this is a great success story for EU food and drink. I think we've seen food and drink exports; they've actually more than doubled in the past ten years. It's huge, about eight percent growth year on year. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I mean, the surplus has grown also because the imports have stayed reasonably static. But on the export side, uh, a lot of that is down to increase in exports of, of value-added goods. Um, and these might be things like wine, spirits, whiskey has been seen a huge boon, uh, particularly to the Asian markets, um, chocolate and specialized meat and dairy products as well. Um, another reason would be just um, the, the wide network of trade agreements that the EU has been delivering on in recent years, and that has facilitated greater trade. And just more standard drivers like uh, increased global demand, um, population growth has been going up. There's maybe been an, an increase in the growing um, in the middle classes in, in emerging economies. And so all of that has led to this huge increase in exports of EU food and drink products. And and I have also a curiosity uh, about this year, a double-digit export grow registered for pork meat to mostly Asiatic markets like China. Uh, is it due to the the African swine fever in 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 the countries in the, in these countries, or uh, is the sector taking advantage of trade tensions with the U.S. between the U.S. and China? Um, less of the latter, more of the former, and that is to say that. China had China in particular was really affected by Africa's swine flu, uh, swine fever, and I think I think around fifty percent of of their herd was lost from it, um, which has been an opportunity for the EU to fill some of that gap. And the, the EU was actually the world's top exporter of pork meat, and China continues to be the largest importer of European pork. Great. And following on from that, with another question about um, exports. Actually, I was interested in the findings on the geographical indications and the traditional specialties guaranteed. Um, so the report found that the sales of these uh, these food products uh, were found to double the, the value of products in the EU. And that also, we export a third of these elsewhere. So what I'm kind of interested in is whether this effect on the value of products that were seen, um, this doubling of the value, was seen both in the EU and uh, and for the rest of the world. You know, is this value double everywhere? Is this, is this kind of valued in this way um, elsewhere? I mean, I think the the point about GIs and these specialist products is that they're they're real niche products that are going around the world being exported and actually contribute to to that previous question we were talking about the increase in exports and the value of exports that has doubled over the last ten years. But they're really into, into these niche markets. And so these products are, are generally sold at a premium um, and they'd be seen as, as premium products in third country markets as well. So 
we don't necessarily see it having a, an impact on the, the value of, of other products in the rest of the world. And, um, and another thing, it's, uh, it's on the SMEs, um, the small and medium-sized enterprises, and the number of SMEs is extremely significant uh, for the sector. But at the same time, we're talking about uh, probably the, the most affected. I mean, the, the SMEs have been at the front line of the economic shock uh, caused by the pandemic. So how things might change after this uh, uh, year uh, with, the, with the COVID pandemic? Well, you're absolutely right. The SMEs are the the beating heart, really, of the food and drink industry. There's 290,000 SMEs, which basically make up 99% of the industry. Um, COVID-19 has clearly and understandably had a massive impact on SMEs, um, but most most particularly the impact has been on the horeca sector. So that's the SMEs that um, work in the hospitality sectors, um, cafes, restaurants, hotels, and, and the like of Um, those sorts of businesses. Um, the the real issue um, for these SMEs going forwards is, is, and now we're in a second lockdown, is liquidity. Um, they simply don't have the cash, the resources, the resilience to, to keep on going without support. So how might things look going forwards? Well, we're really hoping that the European Commission steps in in a number of different ways and also member states. Um, but we need that recovery plan that will help support SMEs and help um, them get over this liquidity issue. We also need to maintain the integrity of the single market. Um, we've worryingly seen a, a little bit of um, a, a national approach sometimes to dealing with this issue. Um, but as soon as we see friction across borders in terms of the flow of goods and services and, and, uh, and work in the workforce, um, that really impacts on SMEs as well, especially as many of them are exporters in the single market. Um, the final thing I'd mention probably is just around the implementation of the Unfair Trading Practices Directive as well. So that will be implemented as of May next year. Um, and that will also be an important moment for many SMEs where national laws will be harmonized and hopefully we'll see fewer problems like late payments. Because that's, again, we turn back to the liquidity problem when SMEs are not paid or not paid on time then the snowball effect is huge and, and, and a lot of these businesses are starting to go out of business because they just can't cope with that. And I just wanted to finish up um, by kind of throwing the question open and asking you whether there was anything else that you wanted to especially highlight, something that you found was a particularly interesting kind of take-home message or a finding from the report that we haven't yet touched upon. I think the staggering thing from the report is just the sheer scale of the food and drink industry. It's absolutely ginormous. And in, in terms of its contribution to the EU economy, it's the largest manufacturing industry, which people might, uh, might not realize. It employs more people in the manufacturing industry than any other. It's 4.8 million jobs. And it contributes a collective salary of something like 113 billion euros, which when we're talking about economically straightened times in the EU, Um, it's good to remember that this is an industry that is going to be right at the heart of the recovery after COVID-19, but it is also right at the heart of all the sustainability challenges that are facing us. And the Farm to Fork um, and the Green Deal of Commission's great ambitious plans. And what this report shows us is that the food and drink industry needs to be right at the center of delivering on some of those sustainability goals and, and therefore We're really hoping that we can be part of the conversation with the Commission, with the Parliament, with the member states as well, 
to, to help to ensure that they reach their targets. And now for the agri-food news from the capitals this week, starting with Romania, where Romanian farmers gathered this week in front of the government building to protest against the measures which stops activities uh, in closed markets. And this has been something that's been very controversial. So representatives of many farmer associations uh, call on the government and local authorities to support the markets, the kind of open air markets, fairs and halls which allow producers to sell agri-food products. And in France... Hunting is a a very divisive issue in France and confinement has done nothing to ease these tensions. So while citizens are only allowed one kilometre away from their homes, hunters have actually obtained a derogation. And this week there was a ministerial uh, statement which authorised the resumption of hunting to regulate big game. Um, But this has come under a lot of criticism this week. And in the UK, the UK government have unveiled plans this week to help kickstart the nation's green recovery. And this includes an £80 million fund for green jobs and new national parks. Uh, so this includes the expansion of protected landscapes, increased access to nature, stronger flood resilience, and also the creation and retention of thousands of green jobs. And we move to Italy, where the forecast for the olive harvest um, is having a 30% of contraction compared to the one of last year. And this is what the Institute of Services for Agriculture and Food Market has recorded. And is is basically caused because uh, these contractions affected some of the main producing regions such as uh, Puglia, Calabria and Sicily. And in Denmark, the Minister of Agriculture has resigned over an illegal government order to cull the country's farmed mink. You probably remember uh, what happened in, in, the, in the past weeks. So Morgens Jensen announced that he, he was stepping down uh, on, uh, on social media, saying he no longer had the support of a parliament majority. And lastly, Poland received recommendations from the European Commission to draw up a strategy under the Common Agricultural Policy for the coming years. So the Commission is ex- expecting uh, the strengthening of uh, small and medium-sized farms and a strong support for organic farming and the improvement of animal welfare. So that's all from us this week. And this week, the Agri-Food podcast was produced by Euractiv's Agri-Food news team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foote, with the technical support of Evie Chiori. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so that you don't miss the latest news from the EU. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher and Spotify. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.